Usually I have notes, but I'm going to be using the, an article as my notes. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to be toggling between a few things. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm going to make um, Harry Potter jokes. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Go for it. I was hoping someone would because I wasn't going to. <laughs> I'll just make unforgiven jokes. Um... Perfect. We'll cover all of our bases between just the two kidding. of you then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, factory sealed for your protection. I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, and I would like to announce my candidacy for president of the Ravenclaw Graduate Students' Union. I pledge... To make this administration stop giving out pointless magic points for antics and to start getting a living wage for those of us working in the upper echelons of magic. Thank you. An admirable cause, for sure. You have my full support and endorsement. Yes. Boy, oh boy. We've got a platform here on this podcast now. <laughs> well... I am co-host Peter Cook, and I got more arms than Green Bay's Brett Favre for you. Oh. I'm on that paper chase like Jay-Z and Foxy Brown. Oh. Or like Richard Harris and Jimmy Webb. Yeah. Do we have anyone else after that paper? Yes, I am your special guest, Taylor Rowley. Glad to be back again, and I am unforgiven, but not unforgiven too. <laughs> Perfect. Well, welcome back, round three. One of our most prolific guests now. Yeah, it's uh, always so fun to talk to you guys. I can't believe it's been like six months already. I know. Where did the time it's go? Crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. Do you want to uh, remind our listeners who may have not heard your previous episodes what you do, Taylor? Yeah, I am a Los Angeles-based music supervisor for film and TV, and I'm also a radio host on NTS Radio. Uh, you can hear my show of your mind. Yeah, you can hear my show, The Windmills of Your Mind, um, every fourth Thursday from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. PST on NTS Radio, their website or their app. And then it's archived on my website afterwards, which is windmillsofyourmind.org. Great. And you brought us, you know, when I was told about this episode, I was like, Taylor's kind of doing a heat check here. Do you guys know what that is? No. 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 I'm going to explain it to our non-basketball uh, following audience. <laughs> and uh, guest. <laughs> and guest. <laughs> So when a basketball player is just like hitting shots left and right, and then they're like, man, I'm killing it. And they just go for like a hard shot that they're probably not going to make. They call it a heat check. Mm -hmm. And when they told me you're doing Richard Harris, I was like, <laughs> I don't know who that is. And Taylor has the distinction of being the guest host on our two most popular episodes, one and two. That's true. So she's been knocking it out of the park. Well, so in my mind, this was a heat check until I learned who Richard Harris was. <laughs> <laughs> and then you realized it might be like, you know, in a trilogy, how the third one is always the worst, like when it's set in the old West or in outer space and it just, you know, tanks the franchise. But, um, hopefully not. I mean, I love Richard Harris. I love Jimmy. Webb. Back to the future three was okay. Yeah. Oh, God. At the very least, it's yeah. the most polarizing entry right. in the trilogy. <laughs> the people that love it are just going to love it more than anything else, and some are just going to be left confused in the dust, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Well, there, right. there's definitely a polarizing track on this record, but we're not going to start there. And, and this is 
Richard Harris's A Tramp Shining, which came out on Dunhill in May of 1968. We're not going to start with the big, big song. Where do we want to start, Taylor? We're going to start with a song called Paper Chase. And I think that is his the fourth song on the record. Although I think when I was listening to it earlier on Spotify, they had interlude lists track listing so i think it was the third one it's confusing because um, of the preludes slash interludes uh, we'll start yeah. right at the beginning of the track so jeremy you're going to drop it after the short little track that you can see on the uh on the record will do skipper all right let's get into paper chase chase she'll make you play it in the bright merry morning she'll run and hide and leave you the paper promises behind her as she runs across the square you can't win the race she'll set the pace you'll hear her laughing just behind the foolish fences throw back the gate Find a piece of paper lying on the curbstone, but the lady won't be there. And later in the day, you'll be searching for a way to let her know you're ready for her little game to end. Cause it's getting dark and then you'll see her face, a glimpse of lace, and you'll go running. Through the last sweet dying daydreams Calling her name But she's been home an hour Laughing at the mirror As she combs her paper hair And later in the day You'll be searching for a way To let her know you're ready For her little game to end Cause it's getting dark and then You'll see her face and you'll go running through the last sweet dying daydreams Calling her name, but she's been home an hour Laughing at the mirror as she combs her paper hair There's almost a Neil Diamond-ish vibe to that track And a very... One thing I noticed listening to this album is it's very expressive vocally, which makes sense once you actually know who Richard Harris is. Definitely. He doesn't so much sing as he just sort of acts the songs, (laughs) Um, you know, which again, yeah, like you said, makes sense being who he is. I love that song. I love the harpsichord. I chose that one for a couple of reasons because I thought it was a good example of his kind of singing style where he just sort of feels his way through it kind of and uh also i you know jimmy webb is who wrote and composed this whole album who we'll get into in depth on this show as we go along uh he he's my favorite 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 ever lyricist i just love his lyrics they're very cinematic they're very visually evocative they're very like almost just like character studies i think that that one has is yeah it's just a good example of his kind of songwriting what he's known for i think and uh it has one of my favorite jimmy webb lyrics in it which is You'll see her face a glimpse of lace and you'll go running through this last sweet dying daydreams. He loves to pack in a lot of adjectives in his lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, also, uh, Art Garfunkel covers that song, or does uh, that song too on his record, Watermark, which is also written, all the songs on Art Garfunkel's record, Watermark, were written by Jimmy Webb. They kind of just go hand in hand to me. Yeah, I have to wonder if, if, is there any Jimmy Webb song that's only been recorded by one artist? It seems like people really like to record his songs. I mean, yeah, it's interesting how, you know, all his songs, so many of his songs are like, you know, they're just standards at this point. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, I'm hard pressed to think of one. There might be some on his own singer-songwriter albums that he recorded in the 70s that never got recorded by anyone else. But somehow I even doubt that. Yeah, he's got to be one of the most recorded writers of the last 50 years. Yeah. So going into this, before we talk about Jimmy Webb and Richard Harris, just obviously, Taylor, we know that you're a fan of this record and a lot of Jimmy Webb's work. Do you remember how you really first got turned on to Jimmy Webb or this record? I mean, it was probably something. It's. I was trying to remember how I got into this record, but I got into Jimmy Webb because probably through the Fifth Dimension. Again, like he wrote a whole album for you know many songs for them and a whole album for them. He wrote this album called The Magic Garden, and that's the one that I love the most um, by them. And and the song that I was just obsessed with on that record was called Requiem 820 Latham. And oh my gosh, those are probably in my top five favorite lyrics of all time. And I just loved them. And I didn't, this is when I was much younger, probably 19 or so. And I looked at who wrote the lyrics and I recognized the name. And so then I got into just getting, you know, realizing that he wrote so many other songs that, you know, I knew and that I loved and were famous and stuff. I think I knew that he wrote that Richard Harris, you know, this Richard Harris album, and I found it at a thrift store. Appropriately, I did. I found it for a dollar at a thrift store, and I bought it, and I loved it. So I don't remember. There's no specific story specifically to this record. It's just that it was more Jimmy Webb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was funny enough. The first time that I became aware of MacArthur Park, which is on this album, the most famous song on this album was a supervisor I had when I was working third shift at a bakery when I was 20 years old, sang me the chorus stating that I believe it was his mother's least favorite song. And the, he, he <laughs> called it MacArthur Park by Donna Summer, I think, is how he, uh-huh. he referred to it. And he sang me the chorus. And I was like, you're making that up. That's not, that's not a lyric in a pop song. And, and a coworker, a much older coworker, vouched for him that it was a real song (laughs) (laughs) and then i i started to see the at some point i started to see the name jimmy webb known for songs like by the time i get to phoenix macarthur park and i'm like Mm -hmm. wait that's you know that's the song my boss sang at me (laughs) years Mm -hmm. and years ago and and that i thought was he was making up but it, so I was really only aware of it for that lyric for a long time until I got a Waylon Jennings greatest hits, one of his earlier collections that had his version on it. And when I lived about 10 years ago, I was living with Sean, co-host Sean, and a bunch of other people. And I was at a particularly low point and I would just lock myself in my room and listen to that Waylon Jennings collection with that version of MacArthur Park on it over and over. And I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was like, why have I been like in my mind? Why was this a joke? This is a beautiful song. <laughs> and then a few flash forward, a few years, we were, I was working at the record store with Sean and became aware of this Richard Harris album when we were going through the bins. And I'm like, Oh, this has it on it too. Not knowing that this is where it all started. Really? That this is the OG version <laughs> of MacArthur park eventually became familiar with the album and I love it in a nutshell. That's my experience, my background. Um, what about the other co-hosts, Sean and Jeremy? I heard this a couple days ago for the first time <laughs> in my life. Wow. How is that for you? And MacArthur Park is by Donna Summer. To me. <laughs> you were another, uh, you were another person that MacArthur Park was by Donna Summer up until a few yeah, days up ago. Yeah, until a few days ago. Yeah, it's... I think I need to listen more before I fully give a judgment one way or the other. I still am in kind of a confused state where I like certain things. I'd say the only thing I don't like is sometimes his delivery feels like overboard to me personally. But I mean, I think that's the that that's not just you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's his the arrangements are brilliant. The songs are like great songs. Jimmy Webb killed it in that arena. And the vocal delivery sometimes kills, but like other times I'm like, a little too much. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, that's what happens when you get an actor 
on the yeah. mic, I think. Namely, it was, I, the song Didn't We is probably my favorite Frank Sinatra song. Love mm. that song by Sinatra. Mm-hmm. And then when I heard this version, I was just like, mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm at with it. I still don't know if I like it or dislike it. I'm leaning towards liking it. <laughs> Good. Hopefully we'll be leaning slightly more in that direction by, by the end of this episode. Yeah, it definitely made a lot more sense once I understood like, oh, this guy is an actor and a theater actor. And that's kind of his main gig, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, when I saw this at the record store, I was like, wait, Richard Harris, the thespian with all the uh, drunken anecdotes with <laughs> Peter O'Toole? That guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, one of the great Hollywood sots. Yeah. Or British Hollywood sots. <laughs> Him and, like, Oliver Reed and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sean, how about you? So I'm pretty sure I've heard his version of MacArthur Park before, just in passing in existence. But today was the first time I ever actually listened to any other track off this record. I remember you being really into it at the record store and like realizing that this was, you know, the actor with the Harry Potter connection and all that stuff. But I just, I don't know. I don't know why I had this impression, but I thought this record was more folky and more spoken word. And I knew that it was kind of a polarizing thing and I just never actually put it on for some reason. So I was very curious when I heard that this was the selection for this episode. And when I put it on, I was expecting to not like it for whatever reason and was very surprised at how much I liked it. I was like kind of thrown off at first, like, wait, I think I enjoy this. And then (laughs) by like the second or third track, I was like, no, I love this. This is great. And the one thing that it kind of instantly reminded me of, interestingly enough, is the artist Lewis who made those two obscure records in the 80s that Mm -hmm. Light in the Attic reissued. I feel like they have kind of similar amateurish but very emotive vocal styles, and I was instantly very into it. I've actually been listening to the Lewis album, Romantic Times, a whole lot recently, kind of rediscovering that, so I was ready for this record. I'm all about it. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's get into the story behind this album, which, of course, it has as much to do with Jimmy Webb as Richard Harris. Yeah. Okay. So Jimmy Webb was born in 1946 in Oklahoma. His father was a Baptist minister. And uh, that is where Jimmy Webb started playing music. He played, he learned piano and organ and started playing at his church, at his father's church, accompanied by his father who played guitar and his mother on accordion. And I just wanted to tie that into, it reminded me so much of when I was on here last talking about the Carpenters, because that was like pretty much the exact same trajectory mm-hmm. or, you know, or just being in a family band and playing um, Richard Carpenter playing and at his church or at churches. But anyway, so he, you know, obviously was very into music at a, or playing music at an early age and he would rearrange the hymns that he was you know, learning to play. And uh, I read that when he was a couple years later, he bought his, he was, he bought his very first record, which what happened to be a Glenn Campbell record. And he loved it. And that's so funny because, you know, not that many years later, he's like writing all these big hits for Glenn Campbell. He leaves in his teens to LA to become, you know, stake his claim as a songwriter. He worked for a publisher in Hollywood, and then he hooked up with Johnny Rivers, who was a singer and a producer. He's also so good. I love him. He Johnny Rivers was actually the one that signed him to his first publishing deal, and Johnny Rivers recover, uh, recorded By the Time I Get to Phoenix first. By At some point, he Johnny Rivers tapped him to come up with material for The Fifth Dimension, and so uh, Jimmy Webb wrote five songs for them, including Up, Up, and Away. And that kind of, you know, <laughs> reached, the, you know, it's a huge hit. Classic. Kind of just set him on that path uh, to success. Then Glenn Campbell wrote, uh, recorded By the Time I Get to Phoenix. All of these songs just became like immediate standards and everybody was recording them. Um, <laughs> they're thrift store songs, you know, like you, <laughs> you find them in all of those easy listening records you, from the 60s at thrift stores. So, you know, he's... Pumping out the hits, 
And by the way, he's still only like 20 years old yeah. when all of these songs, he's like a wonderkind. Like he's just, you know, he's this young kid and he's just writing all of these huge songs for these major players. So I think he was 22 at the time. He was playing a fundraiser and Richard Harris happened to be there. And I just imagine Richard Harris stumbling over to the piano <laughs> drunkenly and be like, we should work together. And he didn't really, Jim, apparently Jimmy Webb didn't really take him serious, but, uh, seriously. But then uh, Richard Harris was like, no, I'm serious. Like later, you know, he like called him up and, and then they recorded this record. MacArthur Park, Jimmy Webb had written, pitched it to a couple people. They all rejected it. It was too weird. The band, the association, he was, took it to them, was like, hey, here's the song. They thought it was too weird, said no. He played it for Richard Harris. And I guess he was like, yes, that's the one. And then in, you know, the jokes on everybody else who rejected it because it became a huge hit. Yeah. Yeah. And Richard Harris, yeah, he, you know, he was this Irish actor at this point. Yeah. And he's like a man's man. You know, he's, uh, he, uh, before became a song or a singer, he was known for being in Westerns and in war films and historical dramas yeah. and the stage, like you said. He had just been King Arthur and Camelot before. Yeah, this. exactly. So yeah, and he had sang some of the movies that he was in, he had had a song in them, but this was like his first kind of foray into I'm a recording artist. Mm -hmm. Well, shall we get to that notorious track? Yes. Yes, let's do it. Let's do that. MacArthur Park. For us, girl, it ran one step ahead as we followed in the dance. Between the parted pages and repressed in love's hot fevered iron like a striped pair of pants. The spark is melting in the dark All the sweet green icing flowing down Someone left the cake out in the rain I don't think that I can take it Cause it took so long to bake it And I'll never have that recipe again Oh no I recall the yellow cotton dress Foaming like a wave On the ground around your knees The birds like tender babies in your hands And the old men playing checkers By the trees This park is melting in the dark All the sweet green icing flowing down Someone left the cake out in the rain I don't think that I can take it Cause it took so long to bake it And I'll never have the recipe again oh, no. For a long time, I just thought that that was a goofy song you know i feel like a lot of people have that same impression like who is this why is someone singing about a cake recipe like the 70s were so weird i feel like it's the impression but i got even 60s, though this is yeah. the 60s but uh i've seen that recipe it calls for the cake to be left in the rain if you're baking <laughs> it for that long you have to replenish some moisture into the cake yeah mm -hmm. also i feel like one of us fucked up by not making our fake title be some kind of like soggy cake deconstructionist or something oh, like that. Totally. I know. Why did I, why did I pick paper chase? <laughs> like cake dehydrator. But I, I was going to say getting more familiar with Jimmy Webb's songs and how he kind of painted these pictures with the lyrics. And I've also been just kind of rediscovering the song 
Wichita line man and like thinking about it, like how good of a song it is, as opposed to just this kind of cheesy seeming song that's everywhere. And and this one's the same thing. Once you actually think of it as the picture that he's painting and uh, understand the approach, it makes so much more sense. And it's a really beautiful, interesting song. Totally. Yeah. The lyrics are incredible. So it, it apparently the, the genesis of that song was from a romance that Jimmy Webb had with his girlfriend at the time, a woman named Susan Horton. And she worked for an insurance company in Los Angeles whose offices were located just across the street from MacArthur Park. And it was, which I've never, well, I've never been to Los Angeles, therefore I've never been to MacArthur Park, but I, I've, I've heard it mentioned in movies. Well... <laughs> So, Taylor, I'm guessing you've been there. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, uh, that is the thing I have about that, this song. I mean, one of the things, but I knew this song, and when I I would drive by MacArthur Park, I feel like it's, I mean, the thing about L.A. is that it's kind of constantly changing, so I don't know what it was like back then, but it's, it's a rough, it's a rough scene. Yeah. Like, uh, so, you know, um, thinking of people, you know, these two lovers, you know, walking through MacArthur Park with, you know, cakes in the rain and it's very romantic. It does not seem, you know, and now it's just, you know, it's, there's, there's dead bodies in that, in that, in that that lake. So the movie I remember it mentioned in was training day. So that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of beautiful architecture around there. So I could have, I could see back mm-hmm. then 50, almost 60 years ago, it being, you know, a really nice part of town. I mean, a beautiful park. I mean, it is a beautiful park. It's just a little rough and tumble. Yeah. yeah. I guess that this, of course, was, this song was inspired by Susie, as she was known, and Jimmy's relationship ending. Obviously, it's a very, mm-hmm. the song is obviously lamenting. Yeah. He'll never have that recipe yeah. again. Yeah. And, and that. Oh, no. He, it seems to me, and Taylor, you know enough about him as a lyricist that maybe you could correct me, but to me, it seems like that for him, that was just kind of a surreal way of describing the way he felt that he felt was in tune with the, I mean, obviously this is not a psychedelic album, but it's of that time period. Yeah. Well, there's actually, if I can, uh, there's a quote from him that he said, everything in the song was visible. There's nothing in it that's fabricated. The old men playing checkers by the trees, the cake that was left out in the rain, all of the things that are talked about in the song are things I actually saw. And so it's kind of a musical collage of the whole love affair that kind of went down in MacArthur Park. Back then, I was kind of like an emotional machine, like whatever was going on inside me would bubble out of the piano and onto paper. Yeah, so it's very direct. Yeah, but he just has such a gr- amazing visual mind. Like the lyrics, you can just see them. You know, they like play out like films. Oh, yeah, I think you, it, no one could ever argue that it's not. It it paints a picture in your head, like a scene. It sets a scene for sure. Yeah, yeah. I like. I love his delivery on that. Harris's. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Even when his voice, you know, like. Some of those like last notes, uh, you know, his voice gets a little thin, but I think it works. Yeah, I, I agree. And I was reading that in a 1973 TV special appearance on a uh, Burt Bacharach show, Richard Harris said that he's not a trained singer, but that he approaches songs as an actor concerned with words and emotion, acting the song with the sort of honesty the song is trying to convey. So I feel like in a, in a lot of ways, he's kind of the perfect fit for Jimmy Webb's painting a picture kind of style. Like he just ran with that and really got it in a way that a lot of other musicians couldn't at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's sort of, a, he's approaching it sort of like a poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like what Taylor was saying about how uh, Jimmy Webb kind of pulled this out of the bottom of his song bag when he met with Harris, you know, ex- th- this is the song that had been rejected by everyone else and like Harris immediately connected with it and was the perfect person to deliver it and made it an unlikely song from an unlikely musician, huge hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think people, I mean, I hate saying stuff like this, but I gotta say people in the sixties were just 
open-minded and I think in a way that people are not now or something. I don't know because it's like, what is this weird seven and a half minute like cantata with this with this weird, you know, this actor and the strange lyrics. I don't know if it's something where people were just like so confused by it that they kept listening, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to hear it or buying the record just so they could figure it out or what, but... I mean, they, it's just, they must have been, they, people just must have been baffled. This was a time where people would become really intrigued by lyrics like Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe. Like, people yeah. would analyze yeah. that song and wonder. It's almost like, it's like proto-viral almost. Yeah, this is, this is uh, people had a little more mental space for stuff like this. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and there wasn't like so many. The song was probably being played on the radio like every, you know, half hour or something. So unlike today where it might not just ever get noticed. But yeah, I just love that song. I will share something on my, I've only was ever on a dating website once like 10 years ago or 12 years ago and briefly. And my, I chose sweet green icing as my, as my handle on OkCupid. (laughs) Because I figured that would weed out anybody I didn't want to meet. Suffice to say, I didn't meet anyone. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like that might also weed out people who do get the reference. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, that's true, too. (laughs) That's excellent. Okay, Cupid. That's that's another different time, I feel like. Right. (laughs) Well, yeah, obviously, as we mentioned, this is a very long track and and we'd be you know for those not familiar checking out this episode i think we would be doing a a disservice by not featuring a little bit more of it yeah we were gonna play uh the bridge starting from the bridge which i have to say i think that uh and this this bridge was featured in the waylon jennings version that i'm familiar with but I think I kind of forgot it was part of this song until I became familiar with the Richard Harris version because it's, uh-huh. it's it's such a different thing. It's you know, and I think that is the Donna Summer version even longer. I feel like in my mind it, that one's like fifteen minutes or something. Well, it's a disco <laughs> yeah. song, so it might be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there there are versions of it. Like I think there's a single version of the Donna Summer one that's only like four minutes, but there are ones that extend well beyond the eight or 10 minute mark, I I believe. Well, here's further into MacArthur Park. My passion flow like rivers through the sky. And after all the loves of my life, oh, after all the loves of my life, I'll be thinking And wondering why Mm -hmm. 
Christmas park is melting in the dark All the sweet green icing flowing down Who are those wonderful players we heard? Yes, those wonderful players were the wrecking crew. I read an interview with the engineer on this, Armin Steiner, and he said that the musical backing track, like the basic rock track for MacArthur Park, was recorded in one take at Sound Recorders Studio in Los Angeles with Hal Blaine on drums. We talked about Hal Blaine, of course, last time you were here, Taylor, on the Carpenters mm-hmm. episode. Joe Osborne on bass, another person we discussed then. Tommy Tedesco and Mike Deasy on guitar, and Larry Nectel on piano, as well as songwriter Jimmy Webb on the harpsichord. They spent six hours rehearsing before doing one continuous take. Jimmy insisted that it had to be one continuous take. The tape was then shipped to London, where Richard Harris recorded his vocals at Lansdowne Studios. And then the, the tapes were shipped back to Los Angeles after that, and the strings, woodwinds, and brass were overdubbed at sound recorders again. It's obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The whole song is so bloated, it makes sense to me. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's in the um, spirit of the song for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's maximalist. <laughs> It's interesting to me that uh, Richard recorded the vocals before the strings, because I feel like the blending of his vocals in the string section is part of what makes this whole record for me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to believe that those wouldn't have been an, an element at that stage. He seemed to understand the song so much that maybe he heard them even when they weren't there. Yeah, could be. Or I'm yeah. sure in a lot of ways the strings were probably playing off of him a little bit with, uh, you know, Jimmy arranging everything, but who knows. I love when it comes back in. It's so, like, triumphant, and it gives me chills, I have yeah. to say. It's like, oh, this is the, it's still that song. <laughs> it's still, it's right, still MacArthur right. Park. Yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah. MacArthur's yeah. Park. Apparently, he and Richard Harris insisted on calling it that. Oh, really? And I don't know why. Yeah, he says consistently throughout the uh, the song, MacArthur's MacArthur's Park is melting in the dark, not MacArthur Park. That's true, yeah. Yeah. I watched an interview with Jimmy Webb in preparation for this, and he, he gave some little anecdotes about the some of the players. He said that drummer Hal Blaine and guitarist Tommy Tedesco were constantly in competition to one-up each other in terms of outrageous behavior in the studio. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, if Uh if Hal Blaine took off his shirt, you know, showing off all his Italian muscles, um, then Tommy Tedesco (laughs) would take his pants off. Like, they they were always, there was always something they were doing, or or who could tell the, the... the dirtiest joke <laughs> or the, or the, it's almost like they were channeling Richard Harris in a way yeah, that yeah. sounds like drunken Richard Harris behavior <laughs> to me. <Totally>. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I actually have seen Jimmy Webb twice in con and mm-hmm. live first time I saw him was that a, sh- it was, I was, I went by myself. I would think I was 24 at this club called Largo here. And I think I was youngest person there. And it was great. He's such a, he's a, you know, he tells stories in between, long, long stories. And it was awesome. I wish I could remember some now. But the second time I saw him, it was my birthday, my 32nd birthday about five years ago. And I saw him play at MacArthur Park. Oh, wow. And he performed the song. And it was the only, the second time he's ever performed it there. I can't believe I didn't bring a cake. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking because it was my birthday. (laughs) Um, But I mean, being LA, being LA, it wasn't raining. So maybe that's why I didn't think of it. But yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. And and Jimmy Webb is uh, still with us to this day. Mm -hmm. Richard Harris, unfortunately, passed away in the, uh, Early two thousands, two thousand two. He had he in his latter years he had 
taken on the role that the younger generation know him for, Dumbledore in the Harry Potter movies. And the only reason he didn't, he he knew his health, (laughs) he was getting older, his health was failing. He didn't want to take on a role of something that was going to be several years of commitment. But I believe it was his granddaughter told him that if he didn't take that role, she would never speak to him again. And so he was Dumbledore in the first two Harry Potter movies. Strong arm. I like that. Right. (laughs) I feel like I keep coming on here with songs that people are always like lampooning, like Loving You by Minnie Ripperton or or the Carpenters are always, you know, kind of made fun of. And of course the song. But I was looking up some fun stuff, uh, trying to remember where I've seen it spoofed before or parodied, but I actually found a great SNL audition, Andy Kaufman's SNL audition, where he recites the lyrics to the camera, you know, very deadpan and it's uncomfortable and it's so good. (laughs) (laughs) You can find that on YouTube. It's, It's great. And then I remembered that Weird Al did it as Jurassic Park oh. in 1993. How did I miss that one? I haven't heard that all. Yeah. It looks like it has a pretty good music video. I, I remember he had an album with uh, Jurassic Park on the cover, but you know, at, at that point I didn't know MacArthur Park and I don't think I ever actually owned that album. So I missed that one. Mm-hmm. Sean, what did you put together for a Spotify playlist for us for this one? Oh, I put a lot of good stuff on this week's playlist. At first, I was a little bit at a loss of of where to go, because in some ways, this record just has so many unique qualities to it. But I started going down the route of people who have covered Jimmy Webb songs or other records that Jimmy Webb had more of a personal touch on, and then started thinking about some of the other smooth pop stuff that was happening in the 60s and 70s, especially things with a heavy string section element to it. And there's a lot of interesting stuff and different angles you can look at this from. So there's uh, Glenn Campbell is on here, Mm -hmm. some Nancy Sinatra, Lou Rawls, one of my favorite kind of crooners who had some really emotive styles to him. Boz Skaggs is on there, the Walker Brothers, Harper's Bazaar, the Supremes from the album that was produced and arranged by Jimmy Webb. There's a Johnny Mathis track on there, another bargain bin staple crooner from his album I'm Coming Home. Mm -hmm. Frank Sinatra's version of Didn't We... Dinah Washington, Ray Price, Willie Nelson, another actor turned singer, Morgana King, who was in the Godfather movies. Uh, I really like her stuff as well as a vocalist. And then, yeah, there's a Carpenter's track and a Minnie Ripperton track from Taylor's previous episodes. I also just added the Fifth Dimension track that Taylor mentioned earlier in the episode, as well as Art Garfunkel's version of Paper Chase. And then we're going to close it all off with... Isaac Hayes' epic 18, almost 19 minute long version of By the Time I Get to Phoenix from Hot Buttered Soul. So you can find that whole playlist on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word, to find this and every other accompanying playlist from our episodes. Fantastic. Yeah. Laura Nero kind of reminds me it would be good on that too. I don't know if it's Ooh, finalized, yeah. but. Ooh, I could definitely put some Laura Nero on there for sure. I think her, off Eli's comment, there's a lot of really good production on there that reminds me of MacArthur's par- uh, MacArthur Park. And she wrote Stone Soul Picnic, am yeah. I right? Yeah, that's her. I think I'm right. Okay. If I'm wrong, don't include that. Yeah, which is another Fifth Dimension song. And then um, good call on Nancy Sinatra because I was when I was listening to MacArthur Park, I was thinking about Bang Bang and how they kind of remind me of each other in a way. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, Nancy's great. Another yeah. uh, another thrift store staple, although her stuff is getting a little bit harder to find, but it's still out there. She did that, right? It's not Cher. Yeah, yeah, Nancy Sinatra did that song. Yeah. Well, okay, that's, okay, that's, cool. that's another relationship cool. where, you know, you have Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra, kind of just like Jimmy Webb and Richard Harris mm-hmm. here. Yeah, it's, I was thinking a lot about how Jimmy Webb has a... Um, He's very, he has kind of like a muse relationship, you know, with these people, like um, writing songs for them. It's interesting that they mostly happen to be men, but (laughs) I think it works. But like, uh, even, you know, and it's funny that Donna Summer did this song because she had sort of a muse relationship, or Georgia Romero had a muse relationship with her. And I just think it all kind of, it's all kind of the same in a way, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. I can see that. 
If any of you guys listened to the Supremes record that Jimmy Webb did from 72. What's on that one? Uh, I guess I'll Miss the Man is the first track. That was like kind of the only hit from the record that I'm aware of. I don't think I have. I don't think I know that one. Yeah, I was unfamiliar with that one and was listening to it because of the Jimmy Webb Association. And it's really good. And it's really interesting to hear his style. But for a group like the Supremes, it's very different from a Mm -hmm. lot of the other people that were covering his music. So I definitely recommend giving that one a listen if you're into this kind of music. I know one song on that. And it's the Joni Mitchell cover, All I Want. And it's so good. And you would never expect the Supremes to cover Joni Mitchell. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's great. I should listen to that whole thing. Yeah, you should also include <laughs> Highwaymen by the Highwaymen, because he wrote that. Okay, cool. You know that song with Willie Nelson? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, definitely. yeah. It's such a good song. He just, yeah, he just wrote so many great things. Yep. Yeah, and then Jimmy Webb also wrote scores for films. He wrote the score to The Last Unicorn. Do you guys know that movie from the 80s? <laughs> nice. Yeah, and he wrote the music, and America performed the <laughs> performed it for um, the soundtrack to that movie. And yeah, and Jimmy Webb also did the score to a movie called The Naked Ape, which is a pretty obscure 70s movie. Um, that I watched last year, and he wrote, he sang all the songs that, on it, actually, not, um, they weren't anyone else. Yeah, but. I haven't spent a lot of time with him as the singer. I, I, like, mm-hmm. I'm not really familiar. I know he, he's done that plenty, but for whatever reason, I've, I'm more familiar with other people. Yeah, he's not a great singer, I will say. Yeah. And I think that he, the last half of the 60s, you know, was so great for him. But I think like in 1970, he started being like, okay, I'm going to start doing my own stuff. And then it didn't really work out that well, I don't think. I mean, he recorded like a lot. There were a lot of records that he put out. But yeah, even this, I was looking through the ones that I know and the ones that I don't know. And even the ones, the songs that you know off his records are still you know better because someone else did it like he did the highwayman and then like but everybody we all know that that one is you know the version that we know i have the feeling that it almost like you said with him you know as a performer not being the best singer that it, if he hadn't originally had other artists as a conduit for his work he could almost mm-hmm. be he may have almost been this like obscure outsider <laughs> yeah yeah i could see that his lyrics do have sort of a song poem element to them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I did read that he would write, when he was growing up in Oklahoma, he would listen to rock radio in the late 50s, early 60s, and he would write response songs to the popular songs. And I don't know which ones he wrote, but he would like write like a reaction song, you know, which is kind of like, you know, very song poem novelty mm-hmm. kind of thing. So yeah, I could see that, but he just, just so, I mean, but he is such a brilliant songwriter and he was so lucky to have worked with, you know, so many amazing people. Yeah. Glad to still have him with us. Yeah. Do we have, uh, Taylor, let's uh, turn the spotlight back to you. Do you have anything <laughs> else you would like to plug while you're with us? Plug? Or, or replug? Hmm. Well, just check out my radio show. Actually, it's on tomorrow. Well, the tomorrow won't be. Um, <laughs> tomorrow is not tomorrow on the show. By the time you get, you uh, get to you, Phoenix, yeah. By the time you get to Phoenix, I will have played this really amazing high school choir slash band version of MacArthur Park on my radio show. So you should check that it's out. Not the Langley School. No, no, it's not. It's another one. It's another. I, I collect. That's my one of my biggest passions. Is like is school school music, school choirs. But yeah, you'll hear that, and it's it's amazing. It's so good. You guys will love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can find that. The radio show is called The Windmills of Your Mind, and it's on NTS Radio every fourth Thursday from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m., and you can find it archived on NTS's website or their app or my website, which is windmillsofyourmind.org. Yes, check it out, listener. It has the I buy that for a dollar seal of approval. Oh, thank you. <laughs> What do you want to tell us about the uh, closing song you chose? Oh, that I chose? Yes. 
Um, I forgot I chose this. Oh, we both did because I was gonna I was gonna suggest it too. If you must, I think it's the best. I I mean, as much as I love MacArthur Park, I mean, I think it, MacArthur Park is it's the most special song on the album, and it's all you know, it's the one that has the mo- most longevity. I do think "If You Must Leave My Life" is the best song on the record. Yeah, this one probably grabbed me the most of of any of the songs when I first heard it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, incredible arrangement on this one. Yeah, I love the backup singers. It's yeah, the fifth dimension influence is very apparent there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that is going to do it. Uh, Jeremy or Sean, do you have any closing thoughts before we get on? We close up shop here. I do not. Taylor, you come on back any old time. <laughs> okay. Agreed. Yeah. I please. I will come on. What's the basketball term for if I flunk this one, but then is it just that I have a comeback or something? Brick. Yeah, you'll be, you bricked it, but you'll be the comeback <laughs> yeah, kid. I it. Yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> cool. All right, well, it's always so great to talk to you guys. Um, thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. And I'm Taylor Rowley. Vote for me. I don't want your life to go wrong, so...